Alright, so we're working through the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. This is Matthew chapter 5. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount. As our children are taken off to Sunday school. We'll see you guys later. We lost Dave. <laughs> Dave wants to head over to Sunday school. I get it. So go over to Matthew chapter 5. And we've been working through them one by one. Looking at them in detail, trying to unpack them. And uh, each one of these sermons that we've been doing over the last month or so is basically looking at one statement at a time. We're looking at what it means to be poor in spirit, what it means to mourn, what it means to be meek, and we work through them. And now we come to chapter 5, verse 8. And you see that there in your Bible, and it says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God now I've been preaching in various ways for a number of years and there are some passages that are kind of like hills that are easy to get to the top of and you can kind of survey the territory and you can kind of understand where they're, what they're like you can survey the land you go okay I can understand this pretty well and I can even communicate this pretty well and then you come across some texts that are like mountains. And you see them, and you go, that is going to be impossible to scale. I'm not going to get to that summit. I can see it, I can understand it, I get an idea of what's being said here. But for me to understand it all, and take it all into my own part in Christian experience, and then to be able to communicate it adequately, I just felt, feel like this is one of those verses that is a mountain that I am not going to be able to get all of it to you. I've been uh, working through it in my own life. It's been tremendously helpful in my own walk with the Lord, and yet I feel like I can only explain a tip of the iceberg unless we want to spend the rest of the year on this single verse, which I don't think we do. We could. There would be benefit in it for sure. He says, the pure in heart are blessed. Because they will see God. The oldest book of the Bible describes Job in his suffering. In one point, his suffering is so deep, he cries out, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. It's always been the hope of the righteous that they will be able to see God. They'll be able to behold Him. Throughout the ages, everyone who has been called part of the people of God, they've had this longing that though in this life they could not see Him in full, though they could experience Him in different ways, they could not see Him. But there was a soul's longing to see Him, to behold Him. You could call it the greatest longing. You could say it's the soul's hunger for the divine. You could say it's the creature's insatiable appetite to behold the wonder of the majesty of the living God and be stunned by it. We all have this. The Bible says we are born with eternity in our hearts. You don't have to be a believer to have this hunger for something bigger, greater, more awesome. 
The desire to see God, I think, is in everyone's soul, although the unbeliever doesn't know it's a desire for God, and so they go from one thing to the next, trying to experience something that will give them uh, a hint of that divine experience of seeing God. Some people, even in the church, will go from church to church or experience to experience trying to find something that will enable them to get the feeling that they're near to God. Some people will go for adventure after adventure, from buzz to buzz, looking for something. Some will aim for excess in academics or success in politics or success in athletics, seeking glory, seeking something that matters, seeking something magnificent. And all along, it, it was the desire for God, desire to see, desire to know. We've all been desiring something that would fill that hole in our heart, right? Everyone has it. And here Jesus stands up and speaks to these Jews, these religious figures that would have been kind of the ones that had the, the truth. They were the gatekeepers of the truth, or at least that's how they viewed themselves. And Jesus declares, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart, not the ceremonially, Pure, not those who are pure on the outside, those who are pure in heart, these are the ones who will see God. They will see God. I think every single one of these statements Jesus has made would have been surprising if you were in the audience. If you were listening to Jesus give this sermon, I think you almost would have expected everything opposite of what he actually is saying. He begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, a statement that seemed radically upside down to what the Jews were hoping. They, they were proud of themselves. They thought they had it in themselves to lead the religious community of Israel. Jesus says, no, it's when you realize you're abjectly impoverished before God. That you have nothing to offer. He says, it's the poor in spirit who get the kingdom. And then he goes on, he says, blessed are those who mourn and and of course, that's, that's a strange thing to say. Happy are the sad. Blessed are the ones who weep. Blessed are the ones who grieve. Why? Because they're the ones that are actually in tune with the reality of the world that's not what it should be. With the reality of their own soul that's not what it should be. And they weep over it. They see that they're poor and they mourn over it. And then, blessed are the meek. Hey, if you're a Jew and you want to take back the country that you see is rightly yours, that's currently occupied by Rome, meekness ain't going to cut it. So the Jews would have said, meekness, poor in spirit, mourning, me, hunger and thirsting, merciful. We can't afford to be merciful if we want to take back the land that is ours. And then he comes and he talks about the hearts of those people who he's speaking to. Blessed are the pure in heart. It was all surprising. It was all something they didn't expect. And now even zeroing in further, he's talking about their hearts. And he's talking about who's going to be the ones privileged to be welcomed into the presence of God. I, I think this, this, this blessing, where he talks about people who will actually see God, is really the spring or the fountain for every other blessing. It's not worth having a kingdom if you can't be in the presence of God. It's, not, it's, it's impossible to have any comfort if you don't have a relation with God, it's impossible to be satisfied without seeing God. The, the, this 
this is kind of strange because I think it's the pinnacle of the blessings that these people will see God. I think that's the absolute ultimate statement in these Beatitudes. But it doesn't come at the beginning, which you might expect if it was the most important. It doesn't come at the end to cap everything off. It's kind of right there, not even really in the middle. Uh, it's, it's kind of left of the middle. It's a statement that you go, well, why? Why there? But what it is entailing is that this statement is the fount, is the spring of every other comfort. To be able to see God is the ultimate long. If we have a kingdom, but we don't have a right relation with God, it doesn't matter. If we have comfort outside the comfort that God gives, it's not real comfort. If we try to get satisfaction outside of the satisfaction of right relationship with God and being able to see Him, it's empty. It's empty. And so He's saying, this is the heart's deepest longing, this is the greatest desire, this is what everyone has desired, and here's who gets to see God, it is the pure in heart. Now this is relevant. I don't think any of you turned on your news this morning. If you do that on a Sunday morning and you maybe got your Fox News going or maybe you got your CNN going and, or maybe on your way to church you turned on talk radio and, and they start chattering about the hot button issues or maybe they're talking politics or maybe they're talking about an upcoming election or big issues of the day, I don't know, and you're listening to something, I guarantee I don't think anything you were listening to this morning had this question on the docket. They were, were, they, were they talking about who's going to see God? Was that important to the morning conversation? Is that on the news? Is that on typical secular radio? Anybody having that conversation? This, this idea, this statement that Jesus makes, that the pure in heart will see God to the world is an irrelevant issue. No one wants to talk about this to us. This is extremely relevant. To know where you will spend eternity, whether you will be in the presence of God seeing Him, is the ultimate relevant question. To know if you can have this relationship with God is the ultimate relevant question. I hope that if I'm ever at a point where I'm sick or I'm hurting or there's tragedy in my life, I think those things will come that come to us all. I hope that one of you, a church family, will be able to come alongside me at a time like that and say, hey, you're going to see God. You're, go you're going to be with Him. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. It's okay. You're going to be welcomed into the presence. That's practical. And I hope that someday if you are to that stage where it's your time to look death in the face, I hope that we can come alongside you and hold your hand and say, you're going to be with me. It's going to be okay. You will look into his face. You will experience what none of us have yet experienced. The vision of God. It's sad when at funerals the person in the casket was so far from God in their life. So distant from God in, their, in their, the way they lived. So totally against them. It's sad when the guy at the funeral has to get up and make up things about them seeing God and being welcomed. It's sad. I hope that we are the people who will say confidently, no, this person knew their God, and right now they are seeing their God. They're with Him. This is practical. And He says that the people who will see their God 
are the pure in heart. The pure in heart will see God. The pure in heart are the ones who are blessed. The pure in heart are the ones who are truly happy. The pure in heart with a pure joy, a pure delight. We think that our happinesses are going to be found in the cheap thrills of Vegas or the exquisite tastes of comfort. That'll make us happy. And Jesus is saying it's the pure in heart who are blessed. Happy are the holy. The pure in heart are the ones who will see God. And so I think we're going to look at three ways to apply this text to our lives. Three ways to apply this. And here's way number one. We need to be honest about our hearts. We need to be honest about our hearts. This is Jesus, again, taking that stethoscope and putting it up your heart. And he says, you got to look at your heart. You gotta examine your heart. You say, well, what's your heart? Your heart is the command center of your life. The heart is, is the command center because it controls the direction of your life. Where your heart goes, the life is following you. Or following that. Your heart produces words, produces thoughts, produces feelings, produces affections, produces behavior. Out of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Everything that you have showing in your life is coming from your heart. It's your command center. And this is what Jesus is most concerned about. The problem is that our hearts are incredibly difficult to know and incredibly difficult to change. We don't really know our hearts very well, to be honest. It's really hard to know your own heart. And so when we're called to change our hearts or examine our hearts or to see if there is purity in our hearts, well, usually we can just focus on the externals. We become kind of religious hypocrites because we build a, a bunch of laws and rules and lists around us rather than really dealing with our hearts. I like what Bob Hope said. Bob, Bob Hope said, sincerity is what matters. Once you can fake that, you've got a name. <laughs> Isn't that how we live sometimes? The heart is what matters, and once you can do all these things on the outside, you've got it made. Once you can make people think your heart's in it, then you've got it made. we got to be honest with our heart. We can't fake the heart. Let's, what does the Bible say about your heart? Uh, it's not good news, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that, the man, that man's wickedness was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You want to get any more superlative about the fallenness of the human heart? Uh, my daughters had a book that they'd like to read growing up. Maybe you read it to your kids or maybe you read it as a kid. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Right? And I feel like that verse is doing the same thing except for it's talking about our hearts. It's saying our hearts are great in their wickedness. Every intention and every thought, all the time, continually. I mean, the writer there, it's Moses in Genesis 6, is saying all the time the, the intentions of the heart of man are not what they should be. They are corrupt. 
few verses later, Genesis 8, verse 21, it says, The intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Childhood. That we, being fallen, are not able to live for the glory of God like we were created to do. And so the prophet Isaiah says, The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. All of who we are, the command center, it's still chugging along, it's still going, but it's going in the wrong direction. So that Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful. Above all things, in desperately sick, who can understand it? The Bible is saying something that's so radically different from what you'll hear in the culture. I was watching a commercial, and basically get to the end of the commercial, and it's talking about how you need to go after your heart's greatest desire. You, you see these things? Any movie, any song, nearly any book, you're even watching the TV commercials, and this message is being shoved into the faces of everyone who will listen, and the message is, is your heart is good, and those desires there are good, go express them. The height of human dignity is to express your heart's greatest desires and to fulfill your heart's greatest desires, and the Bible's sitting here over to the side saying, hey, every desire that comes from that heart is wicked, your heart is deceitful. You go that route, you're plunging yourself into destruction because your heart's not going to lead you to your highest blessedness. This is countercultural. But isn't it true? For honest? For a second, we can look inwardly at our own hearts that they don't lead us in the right direction. Any of you want for a, for a minute your heart's thoughts and intentions put up on the big screen for all to see? None of us want that. Because if we're honest, we know that in the battlefield of the mind, we are not always winning. In the battlefield of the heart and the affections and what we think about, what we want, even the secret questions we ask, we know that it's not what it should be. Well, that's exactly right. That's what the Bible says. We don't know our hearts. If you've been a parent, you've probably, or if you've been a teacher, or you've interacted with little children, uh, they've done something wrong at some point, and at some point you needed to correct them. And so you leaned in, and you spoke to them so they could understand you, and you said something along the lines. You asked them a question. You said, why did you do that? And they looked back at you with complete sincerity, and they said, I don't know. <laughs> and guess what? They're not lying. Why? They don't know the motives of their heart. They don't always know why they did what they did. Motives are like shadows, and you got your flashlight, and as soon as you shine it on it, it disappears. Go try to analyze your heart. You won't always know why. You won't always be clear. This is why David, in the Psalms, he cries out to God, he says, search me, know my heart. Tell me, if there's any wicked way in me, I want to know, search it out. I want to be pure from the inside. Out. And so Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart. Deep down, core of who you are, he wants you to think about your heart, which is to say our hearts are our biggest problem. Aren't they? If you were to list all the problems you have, I think the most biblical list would be the one that has my heart at the top of the list. I'm my biggest problem. In my marriage, I'm my biggest problem. 
In my leadership, I'm my biggest problem. In my relationships, I'm my biggest problem. In my parenting, it's me. I have to work on my heart because I know it can deceive me, that it can be twisted, that my desires can go all wrong. And so we know that the heart is really hard to change. And so sometimes what we do as fallen human beings is we want to uh, do something that makes us look like we're getting it all right, but it only really addresses the outside. See what I'm saying? We, the heart's so hard to see. It's so hard to know. It's so hard to understand. And so we want to we want to present something different from reality. We want to portray something that's external, make it look like our hearts are good. See what I'm saying? We want we we really like putting on facades that impress people, even while our hearts are maybe distant. We we really like laws and rituals and habits. Uh, there was a. Um, a guy who was a speaker, uh, Paul Tripp, maybe you've read some of his books. He has this great illustration where he talks about, he tells a story. He says, imagine this man who has an apple tree grown in his backyard. And he takes a look at that apple tree and he, he looks at the branches and, and there are no apples. And he looks over his neighbor's, neighbor's fence and he, he takes a look at that neighbor's apple tree and he sees these beautiful Red apples grown, juicy, ready to be eaten, just pure good apples. He goes, why, why, why does my tree have those apples? I don't want apples like that. And so I, I, I got to do something about this. And so he thinks, well, what am I going to do to make sure I got apples on my tree? So he goes, ah, I got an idea. He heads over to the grocery store. And he gets a big bushel of apples, the biggest, juiciest red apples you could find. And he grabs those things. He goes, I'm going to. I'm going to have a tree just like my neighbor's tree. And he gets that bushel of apples, and he gets his nail gun. And he gets out there and starts nailing those apples to the tree. And he makes sure that every single one of those branches is just has apples everywhere. The biggest red apples you could imagine. They're just covering the tree from a distance. The people all go, oh, wow, look at, the look at our neighbor's new tree. Uh, somehow overnight, the apples are growing. They're everywhere. Look at this. And how long does he impress the neighbors? <coughs> a day, two days, three? And in a little while, those apples are rotting and stinking and gross, and they're falling off their nails. They're not, they're, they tried to staple them on, and it's not working, right? <laughs> and this is sometimes what we do in the Christian life. See, the problem with the tree wasn't that it didn't have apples. Problem was something was wrong with the tree at its root. Something was wrong with the core of the tree. And you can't fix that tree by just adding stuff to the outside. You gotta go to the heart of the tree. Maybe you gotta get a new tree. Maybe you gotta go dig up something and recultivate it. Maybe you need something dramatic. But guess what? Adding stuff to the outside doesn't work. And this is how sometimes we do this as Christians. We say, oh, I do need to change. I do need something to go on. I, I recognize I gotta change. And we start stapling fruit into our lives. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this. And we're not really judging our, the, the, what we need in our hearts. We're not really evaluating the heart changes. And so we're just so concerned about the external that we should become not very concerned about the internal. We're apple staplers. One way you might know that you've been apple stapling, answer this question. Are you starting to care, or have you cared more about your public persona? You care more about your public persona 
than your private devotion. Because if you care way more about your public persona, you'll give a lot more attention to that, not very much to your heart. Do you tend to think that your biggest problems are outside of you? It's that person, it's that thing, it's this system, it's that person. Rather than saying, I need to change. Are, are we the ones who think, I can fix my deepest problems? If so, you're just ready to staple another apple. Do we evaluate our performance, our religious performance, based on the metric of Bible reading, how long you spend in prayer, how often you evangelize, how often you go to church, and you say, because I do this, 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 and this, all these outside things, I must be very spiritual. When your heart may be far from the Lord. I remember a man at a church I served in years and years ago uh, came out up to me after service. Guy who couldn't be my grandfather's age. He comes, he, he storms up to me, face red, and he's, he's angry, I could tell. And he starts talking to me about how the church he feels is dead and how he feels that no one gets it and no one's as passionately committed as he is and clearly mad and clearly saying things that are just inappropriate about the other members of this church. And he's going off about this. And then he starts saying this. He starts saying, I read my Bible every day. I pray for 45 minutes every day. I'm at church every Sunday. And he's listed all the things he does. And I felt like saying, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, I felt like saying, yeah, these things you should have done, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like love, like faithfulness, like mercy. You've stapled so many apples that you've convinced yourself that everything's okay while your heart is not right with the Lord and not right with the people. You're not loving the people God has called you to love. You're angry with them. You're not loving them. And so Jesus here is saying, we need to be honest. It's all about our hearts. We need to get down to the core. He's not interested about adding new routines to your life, new habits for your life, new disciplines for your life. Although those things will come as a fruit of a changed heart. He's saying, I want you. I want your heart. I want your love. I want your devotion. Jesus is drawing attention to our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart. Here's the second takeaway. First, we got to be clear about our hearts. Second, we need to be clear about our purity. What does it mean to be pure? What does it mean to have a pure heart? What does it mean to be pure down to the core of who we are in that command center called the heart? There's two sides of purity that I think we need to look at. They're really two sides of the same coin defined negatively, purity is the absence of inward moral filth, okay? Defined negatively, to be pure means in your heart there's no guile. In your heart there's no filth. In your heart there, there's a cleanliness deep down. Defined positively, it's the presence of single-minded devotion to God. So, so there's, there's really, they're related. First, it's the absence of inward filth, and it's the presence of total devotion. Now, I want to show you this. I'm not just making this up. This is found in Psalm 24, and then we're going to look at James 4. But first, let's look at Psalm 24, and then we're going to look at James 4. 
I think many of the Beatitudes of Jesus was meditating on the, some passages in the Old Testament. And as he meditated on them and understood their meaning, they came out in the form of pithy, strong statements that we call the Beatitudes. I think this Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, he was probably thinking about Psalm 24. Specifically, verses 3 to 6. Read with me. He says, Who shall ascend this hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? This is the same idea as coming to see God, being welcomed in his presence. Who's going to see God? Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Here it is. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You get two sides of the coin even right there. The inward purity in verse 4. Someone who has no, who has no guilt on their hands. Who has a pure heart. Not lifting up their soul to what is false. That means you're not drawn. You're not, you don't have a compulsion to be going toward that which is filthy or that which is perverse. On the other side, you have this, in verse 6, the generation who seeks him, who seeks the face of God. There's a single-minded devotion. This is what purity is. It's the absence of inward filth. You're not lifting your soul up to that which is sinful. You're not trying to impress the world. And then you say you're following the Lord. I remember reading a book where one of the characters was described as someone who had every thought coated lightly in slime. I remember thinking, what a graphic picture of the human heart. Coated lightly in slime. This is the opposite of what David's talking about here in Psalm 24. It's moral purity. It's the idea that I don't have any ulterior motives. I'm not trying to hide secret sin. I have no secret desire to scam you. I'm not posturing to take advantage of you. I have a clear conscience before the Lord. There's inward purity. There's a guy, George Fox, an old Christian, walked with the Lord, and on his deathbed he cried out, I'm clear. I'm clear. And it was the testimony of a clear conscience before the Lord. It was the cry of a pure heart that he was about to stand before his God and he had confidence to say, I know of nothing against me. There's a, there's a lack of inward filth. This is part of what it means to be pure. It's part of what it means to walk in purity is this idea that I don't have any secret sins. I don't have anything I'm hiding from you. I don't have any ulterior motives. Often in Scripture, it refers to sexual purity. The idea that you view the opposite sex the way God intended you to. Now we have to start asking ourselves these questions. Are you pure in this way? Or when you look in at your heart, do you say, oh, it's grimy in there. It's kind of gross in there. The idea of purity also includes a freedom from the contamination of the world, that I'm not following the world's value system and the world's priorities. I'm free from them. It's the absence of being drawn into these sins. 
That's what inward purity is. That's the absence, but positively, it's the presence of total devotion. You've got to ask yourself this question. Are you purely devoting your life to God? This is what it means to be pure. Now turn over to James chapter 4, and you'll see this. James chapter 4 in the New Testament, I think, is maybe reflecting on the same passage as we just looked at in Psalm 24. In verse 8, chapter 4, James writes, Draw near to God. There we have idea, that same idea. It's drawing into the presence of God. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Okay, how do I do that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see that? Come to God. You've got to purify your hearts. How do I purify my heart? You've got to get rid of the double-mindedness. The opposite of purity is double-mindedness. You say, what's double-mindedness? Look back with me at chapter 4, verse 4, the same chapter. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What's it mean to be double-minded? It means you love the world and you're trying to love God at the same time. You're trying to pursue the things the world has for you, and you're trying to pursue God on the other hand. You're double-minded. You can't make up your mind. You're, you're saying, yeah, I want to go to heaven. I want a relationship with God. Yeah, sure. I'd like to see God. But really what I want out of life is to get this thing, that thing. I want to accomplish this in this world. I want all the comforts this world can give me. I want all the accolades and achievements this world can give me. That's double-mindedness. It's the absence of single-minded devotion. The presence of single-minded devotion is what the Lord would call purity. And so you have the absence of moral filth. You have the presence of single-minded devotion. Now ask yourself this. Are you pure? Are you pure? Is your heart pure? Not do you do pure things on the outside. We're talking about delights, desires, affections, inward compulsions. What do you want? We're talking about that deep questions. And the question is, do you hate your sin? You hate the filth in your heart. And your desire, your great desire is to be single-mindedly devoted to God, His Word, His work. Are you pure? You say, how would Jesus define purity? David defined it as absence of inward filth. James defined it as a single-minded devotion to the Lord, no double-mindedness. Well, how would Jesus define it? This was the Pharisees, one of their favorite pastimes was to come and try to play that game. Stump Jesus. And they try to ask him those questions, right? To test him. They're trying to test him a little bit. And they ask him this one time in Matthew 22, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of all? You know what Jesus says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Not that you go do these things. This is purity according to Jesus. It's this, is you have a heart that is so devoted by love to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, you love Him. And so out of that love for Him, that produces fruits of righteousness. It's one without hidden guilt. The pure heart is one without undercover shame, without secret sin. It's pure because it's filled with a single-minded love and devotion 
to God. Deep down, our greatest delight is to see God glorified. Our greatest desire is to live for Him. It is our joy. Christ is what we cherish. We're talking about affections, delights. What makes us happy in the pure heart is one who finds its greatest joy in loving and serving God. That's purity. It's not adding rules. It's not posturing. It's not looking Christian on the outside. It's deep down purity. The third application of this text is this. Meditate on the result of purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? They shall see God. You want to be pure. Start meditating on that day that you stand face to face with God. And if you hope in that day, it will start changing the way you live this day. Martin Luther said, there's two days on my calendar. That day and this day. That day when I stand before him and this day I got to live. And I'm going to live every day in light of that day. Result of purity, the result of purity is this. You will stand face to face and see. Now God has given you five senses. You can touch, taste, smell, hear, and you can see. And the greatest of those senses is the ability to see. To see. To go deaf is sad to go blind is a tragedy. We love sight. People will travel around the world to see things. They want to see the Taj Mahal, or they want to see the Great Wall of China, they want to see the Grand Canyon. It's not enough enough to see it in a picture. They want to behold it, they want to be there. This is true in relationships. A military man gets deployed and the family is left here in the States. The, those kids, they want to hear their daddy on the phone. They do. They want to read his letters that come in the mail. They do. But they want to see him. They want to be there with him. They want to look into his eyes and have that unmediated access to their father. This is what we all long for in our relation with God. We want to see him. Yeah, we have his word. We can hear it. We can open up the Bible. We can even see the works of God's hands all around us as we walk through creation. We can't see yet. Paul said he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen him. Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God responded saying, you cannot see my face. You cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. Those were his words. We long for that. We long to be able to see God. And we know that we can't. David had the same desire. In Psalm 51, he's confessing his sin. He's, he's saying, hide your face from my sins. He said, don't look at my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. And then he says this, create in me a clean heart. 
Create in me a clean heart. That word create is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 1.1 that speaks of creation from nothing. He's saying my heart doesn't need to be tweaked. My heart doesn't need a tune-up. I need a new one. I need you to create one in me. I need a new heart. And then why, David? Why do you want a new heart? Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Why did he want a new heart? He wanted to be in the presence of God. And he knew that without a new heart, he can't stand before God. He didn't have the heart that was inwardly free of moral filth. He didn't have the heart that was single-mindedly devoted to God and his glory like he wished. And so he cried out, give me a new heart. Now, as we talk about purity, one of the things we all do, if you have any self-awareness, you come to this conclusion, you go, I don't have that heart. I don't have that purity of heart. If you ever come to that conclusion, you know what? You're right. And here's the gospel. That God loves to save sinners. And he doesn't save those who sit there saying, my heart is good. I have all I need. He saved those who come to him and say, my heart is broken. I need a new one. My heart is dead and in sin. I need a new one. My heart is filthy. I need you clean it up. This is not only how people get saved. This is how we grow. The moment you see filth in your heart, it's all there. The moment you see that you lack single-minded devotion, that happens, is we come to God and we say, my heart isn't what it should be. You created me new. You give me new life. You give me new strength. I can't do it. You must. And the amazing reality is that God creates new hearts from nothing, gives them to his people who come to him by faith, and then as we walk by faith, he purifies us day by day as we continually come to him in faith. The bad news is you can't change your heart. Adding apples to the tree by stapling them doesn't change anyone's heart. All our good works we do outside of the work of the Spirit is just staple and apples. The good news is that God loves to save his children, to give them new hearts, and then he loves to walk with them like a good shepherd. And he loves to walk alongside them. And he loves to produce in those who are humble fruits of righteousness. And he does that. And so every step of obedience that you take, you say, I can't do this, Lord. If I do it in my own strength, it will be hypocrisy. I can't do this. But you can and will. And we step forward in faith. You must create the purity in my heart. You must give me the purity you command. Years ago, ancient church father Augustine said, grant what you command and command whatever you want so what does that mean? He was saying this, Lord, as God, you can command whatever you want. But if you command it, you have to produce it in us, or else it's not happening. Command whatever you want, but give me what you command. And that's what God has done here. Blessed are the pure in heart. He commands pure hearts for those who will enter his presence. And he gives that which he commands. Like a king who says, to enter my kingdom, you must have clean robes, and you must have great riches. And if everyone in the world goes and searches every other place, they will not find it. But if they come to that king and they say, I don't have that. I don't have those robes. And I don't have those riches. He will say, ah, you've come to me. I will give them to you. 
welcome into my kingdom. You say, I don't have strength. You're right. He does. Go to him. He gives it to you. I don't have purity. You're right. He does. Go to him. He gives it to you. Blessed are the pure in heart because God is making us prepared to meet him. He is making us prepared to see the Lord. And those who are walking in this purity, not perfect purity, but walking in purity, increasing purity, listen, we get to see God. You are those who will enter the courts of heaven and stand before the King of Kings. And you will look upon the God who created all things. You may be wanting to go see the Grand Canyon. How about standing before the one who carved it into the earth with his finger? You've looked up into the stars and you've seen the constellations. And maybe you've seen the billions of galaxies. How about seeing with your eyes the one who spoke those into existence with a word? You want to see him? This is our longing. Listen, you who are trusting in Christ have been given pure hearts. You are increasingly becoming what God has said you are. You're becoming pure. And one day you will see Him. You will see Him. He dwells in unapproachable light and you will dwell with Him. Revelation 22, 4 says, You will see His face. To see the face of God. When you get to heaven, you're going to see loved ones. And you're going to be thrilled to see them. And you're going to see maybe heroes of the faith. I'm going to give Charles Spurgeon a big hug. I'm going to shake Martin Luther's hand. But none of it, not even a new body, not even a lack of pain, none of it will compare to that moment that we see him. The one who made us the one who redeemed us, the one who brought us in. And we will say, you get all the glory. The Father who chose me, the Son who redeemed me, the Spirit who drew me, all praise and honor and glory to Him forever and ever. We'll shout all the saints for all ages because He deserves it all. And we will see Him. And we will see Him face to face. And we will love Him. Perhaps says right now we see Him like we see Him in a, a mirror, dimly we barely see him, like a foggy mirror. We can't hardly see him. We see him in his word, in a sense. We see him in creation, in a sense. But it's all mediated. It's, all, it's, it's not immediate. It's not face to face. But there will come a day that we will see him. Now, if that's true, brothers and sisters, if that's true, that you will see him, and every moment of every day leading up to that day that you see him is a preparation for that time you are called into his presence. Live this day in light of that day. Live right now knowing that those things in your heart, those things in your mind, those things that you do are going to be brought with you as a testimony to your life before his presence. You will stand before him. And if we hope in that day, we purify ourselves now. Why? Because he is pure. Lord, we can't possibly fathom what it means that we will see you.
can't possibly fathom what it means that we will see you face to face. But it's true. And maybe this morning we woke up thinking about budgets, broken sinks, long drives, difficult relationships. But the weightiest reality of all is that we live each day in your presence, but one day we will come into unmediated presence before your face. And we will see you as you are, and you will see us. So Lord, I pray that you would then purify our hearts, that you would give us a single-minded devotion to you, that you'd cause us to repent of every inward filth, that we would be truly those who are pure in heart and that we would live each day meditating on the result of that purity is that we will see you. So Lord, we cry out to you like little children waiting for their father. We say, Lord, I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to behold you. I can't wait to run into your arms. Lord, as we express that desire, let us live in purity now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand while we sing this last song.